0: A real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is uh, Dr. Joseph de Alcaraz-Fasur, Uh, He's an assistant professor of forensic science at University of New Haven. So we're going to talk about his work in forensic, which I think will be super interesting, a bit about his background, etc. So, Joe, thanks for coming. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background. How did you get into forensics? Well, a while ago, after
2: I did my postdoc in molecular biology, I thought I had the feeling that I had to do something useful, more tangible than research uh, in a lab, that we all know that in medicine, it may take, uh, or in biology, it may take many years until you see the effects of the research that you're doing. And at that point, I had a friend who was a police officer, and he told me, why don't you put in practice everything you've learned in molecular biology? And cancer research in the field of forensic, molecular bio, forensic bio. And I was like, oh, sure, why not? And I didn't have in mind to become a forensic scientist, like crime scene investigator or like long term. And once I... I went through the police academy because back in Europe, if you want to be a forensic scientist or a crime scene investigator, you have to go through the police academy. I noticed that after my training, I started to fall in love with everything except for forensic bio. So at that moment, after my many years of doing my bachelor's in microbiology and my PhD in molecular biology, I wanted to experience other fields and or other disciplines and at that time I said how about we doing crime scene so I went to into crime scene uh, not knowing much about crime scene and I fell in love with it it was super exciting very different from being in a lab and I could feel like I was helping people more in a kind of immediate way than just doing you know cancer research which I really love but I could feel more kind of a immediate return by helping people, going to crime scenes and helping solve crimes. And after I did that for about four years, I said, okay, it's time to move on and do something else. And then I decided to go to Crime Lab uh, within the same agency. And at that time, since I didn't want to go back to biology or forensic biology, I decided to go into something that I thought it was not very scientific at that time, which was the analysis of handwriting forensic handwriting examinations and the examination of uh, question documents, anything with passports, ID, counterfeits and all. And I fell in love with it again. So again, for a few years, almost five years, I was doing question document analysis, handwriting analysis. And then I actually saw and I experienced myself that
1: there was more science into handwriting that I Expected. So let's start with, you know, the crime scene work. What was that about? You know, what what was it like? What are some of your experiences that you remember? Well, uh, the first one, one of the things that was very afraid, I was one of the few forensic scientists
2: or, you know, police officers, because actually I had to be a sworn officer that went through the police academy that had a PhD degree. And one of the first, since I didn't come from a background, my parents uh, are not forensic scientists, uh, have no police, you know, related family members. I thought, well, what's going to happen? How am I going to react when I see the first dead body? And that was one of the first fears, you know, going to a crime scene and seeing the first dead body, especially if the dead body was decomposed or it was a very sensitive body, for example, kids, young people or accidents or suicide, for example. And that was my major fears. And I... It went really fine i went to crime scenes i saw dead bodies and i i reacted quite well you know my experience was very positive i had a very pleasant experience i was very happy to have good advisors mentors my experience was everything but positive and i loved it crime scenes it was very busy once you become a csi you never stop working one of my other fears was how once you go to a crime scene once you start your work day you never know when you're going to finish.
1: Really? Why? Because other cases could come in or it's just everyone's overloaded? Like what's the reason?
2: Yes, there's a lot of work. Unfortunately, these fields, we're never going to go unemployed. There's a lot of work. And in this case, you know, have very long days. You may work 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 20 hours straight. You may not have time to eat. You may have barely time to have a drink. So it can be very intense. Not always, but often it can be very intense. I had cases, days that I had to go to three or four different crime scenes at this on the same day. And it can get very, you know, very intense and stressful as well. But if you... Learn how to time manage. If you take good notes, if you go take good pictures and everything, then, you know, it's supposed to be a pleasant experience overall. And the satisfaction of that you feel that you're helping people while you're working, that's huge. And to me, this, you know, this is something that I really appreciate from being a crime scene investigator.
1: Well, I guess, you know, the first time you saw a dead body, it was weird. But the hundredth time you saw one, you know, you could probably be eating a turkey sandwich and just keep eating and not even worry about it, right? Yes and no.
2: I mean, every case is different. So every every time you go to a crime scene, we always tell, and I was told when I was being trained, that every crime scene is going to be different. And don't assume anything. Don't assume that, okay, you know, you see this body and yeah, you've seen once, you've seen them all. Well, yes and no the yes is that yes is a dead body, but the no is the circumstances surrounding the body. So a dead body at the end of the day, if you look at it from the biological perspective, it's just like a whole bunch of bones, skin, cells, and that's it, right? But behind it, there's a person, there's a life, there's family members, there's circumstances. So as I said, yes and no, the yes is just yeah, it's just a body. And the no is just because you're interacting with the family members, you're interacting with witnesses, you're interacting with anyone who's been in involved in that crime. And obviously that is actually very different. And the age of the individuals also matter. So it's not that they see like an 80 year old or a 70 year old or a 50 year old or a six month old. It's very, very different and it has a huge impact. And especially if you see gruesome crime scenes that you would never imagine that it would see that in, in your life. Uh, oh, no. This is, I you know, some circumstances are tough, are very difficult to explain. And these you don't see on television, of course, because they go beyond, you know, imagination sometimes.
1: Are you able to describe one of them and maybe using soft words like what happened? Or, you know, if it's too much to discuss, it's okay. Well, I don't know exactly what the audience is of the podcast, but there's a lot of cases that,
2: you know, the mildest cases that I can describe is when someone has just recently died of an overdose or someone who has committed suicide, for example, taking an overdose of pills or poisoned. Uh, Those are cases that the body is very fresh and you go to the scene. Those are, you know, big deal crime scenes. The ones that can become a little more, I would say, not very pleasant, okay, are the ones, especially in my case because we all have our weaknesses. My case is seeing cases that involve um, many times young kids or teenagers. Those are the ones that can affect anyone,
1: whether you're a professional or not. And those for me are especially sensitive. Do you get any, like, you know, I'm not saying anything's wrong with you, but do you get therapy sessions to help you? Is there a a program when you were doing CSI work to to prevent, you know, moral injury or you becoming like really messed up in the head from seeing all this stuff so often I'm not again I'm not saying you're weak or there's anything wrong with you but anyone that sees that over time I guess would be affected and if you don't watch out and you know maybe get therapy and stuff like that it may be it might affect you in a negative way you
2: know? well that's a very good question because before you actually get in the discipline of crime scene or you know forensic science in general you don't think about this thing and I think my head is very well in place and I don't think I have any uh, psychological issues beforehand but we do actually the police agents They provide psychological services and psychological support, especially for cases where crime scene investigators or even forensic scientists or even crime lab technicians, you know, they have gone through a very, very tough situation. And yes, we do have those. I've never used them, but I'm aware that... uh, several colleagues uh, may have used those services. And those are very typical, again, that depends a lot on the agency and how the agency supports their employees. But in my case, it was very supportive, but I I never had to use them. Yes, they
1: actively provide those services for sure, yes. So what things did you observe about the whole process that like the show CSI on TV, I'm sure is like wildly inaccurate. So what are some of the realities of forensics and crime scene investigation that you learned that people wouldn't know about from watching TV? So I was a big fan, the early 2000s of CSI, you know, CSI Las Vegas,
2: CSI New York, CSI Miami. And my grandmother was a huge fan as well. And we used to watch them together many times. And when I told her I was going to become a CSI, she was super excited. And then I started working as a CSI and I had to stop watching this TV show because they upset me somehow with all the mistakes that could see everything that was very beautified if I don't know if that is a word, but everything looks so beautiful, so glamorous and actually crime scene processing, crime scene investigation is nothing like that. I mean, of course they have to make it amenable for people to watch those shows, but as an expert, you come to realize that when I see those shows, I kind of get angry, start getting into a mode of like, let's do the analysis of the analysis that they do at the crime scene in these TV shows.
1: Before we continue. the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I'm totally with you. I've I spoken to people that are police and they hate police shows, doctors hate ER. You know, forensic people hate CSI it makes total sense because it's so ridiculously inaccurate you like can't stand it you're like probably like, climbing out of your skin to like this is ridiculous it's like yes right
2: yes Richard that's exactly it so and that's why every time I, on Netflix for example every time I see TV shows that go about crime scene but include like you know TV shows like Bones like uh, Dexter and all those I get very very mad at, you know, the shows themselves because they they have a lot of inaccuracies. And actually in my class, I show them videos and then the students have to tell me what they see that it's being done wrong. And I use that as an exercise for them to become aware of the mistakes you're not supposed to make at a crime scene. So I use them as a, an occasional tool for them to, for my students to actually pinpoint what's wrong with those crime scenes. Anything from PPE that is not being properly worn to how to process the evidence, how to locate the evidence, how to protect. So it's it's a whole lot of things that unfortunately, many times they're getting it wrong. Can I give you a few examples? I have like millions of examples. I mean, I usually use a a clip from Dexter. He goes to a crime scene and he starts collecting blood sample and he's not wearing a mask. He's not wearing a PPE. In some cases, he's not even wearing gloves, And I'm like, what? So of course, when we collect the DNA evidence or even blood from the crime scene, you always need to wear some at least level of protection. And at the very least, if you're getting samples, you know, that you're playing with because you're touching the objects, you need to wear a mask because if you spit on it or even you just breathe on it, you may contaminate your sample. So this is only one of the cases that I use with Dexter. Other cases may involve getting powdering a fingerprint with the wrong powder. You know, instead of using a black powder on a white surface, they're using a white powder on a white surface. And you're like, really? You, there's not going to be any contrast. You, how are you going to be visualizing a fingerprint when the powder to develop the fingerprint is the same color as your background? That doesn't make any sense. So that's why I had to stop watching these videos because it, they became,
1: well, or these TV shows because they became very stressful. I heard too, like the amount of investigation and money and time they put into it would only be reserved for the most highest profile murders, not these cases. So that's true that one of, for example, the
2: only time that I can watch crime-related shows Is documentaries, like real documentaries, that they actually reconstruct the crime scene. And I've seen very nice documentaries on Netflix and outside Netflix, like CBS or whatever network. And those documentaries are very good and very reliable. And they actually use proper expert for the analysis of the crime scene, the evidence, especially reconstructions. Uh, And they're very good. But everything else that comes from TV that is not a documentary, it's very fictitious and sometimes very wrong. So this is one of my concerns that people may get the wrong perception. And especially when people have to witness or would they have to go to court and become part of a jury, they may have certain expectations. Because of this CSI show. And they may think, okay, if there's no DNA, we have no case. And I'm like, no, DNA is just one of the evidence that you can collect from a crime scene and you can solve a crime scene without DNA and it's perfectly fine. But the influence of these CSI shows into like, you know, lay people has a very negative impact when it comes to the resolution of actual cases or uh, especially in court because they may think, okay, well, we don't have any DNA, we're not going to. Evaluate any other evidence, especially the jury, and uh, it's unfortunate because you may have shoe prints, you may have ear prints, you may have blood spatter, you may have all sorts of evidence that are also very valuable for crime scene reconstruction, and they think it's
1: less than DNA, and that's unfortunate. Okay. Also, too, like, is getting stuff from the lab doesn't—it's not like instant. It takes a heard weeks and weeks, right? Like six, eight yes. weeks to get
2: stuff. Well, we're getting better. Okay. So I'm very happy. The first time I was involved with crime scene and crime labs was like over uh, in 2006. So I'm talking about over 15 years ago. And I could see there's been a huge improvement in technologies, in the science applied to the crime scene. And I can say that we're better now than we were 15 years ago. Times have improved. So the turnaround time getting, for example, fingerprint analyzed or DNA profile. These days you can get a DNA profile. If you push it really, really hard, uh, you could get a DNA a full DNA profile within, you know, forty-eight hours. So that's amazing. Uh there are, you know, some other if you want to have a partial profile, we have these rapid DNA technology that you can have it within six hours or less. So we are almost there, but not as quick as like within a few minutes that these TV shows actually show that okay you know we put like a fingerprint and within like three seconds we have the identification the address the photo everything about the person not three minutes just give me about three hours at least and then perhaps we could do something with the fingerprint a technology is about the same thing we're
1: getting better but we're not there yet how would you solve the case though if you have like 50 cases to work on you got to go from case to case to case you're always busy. You know, how do you remember what's going on with a particular case and go through your notes and the evidence to really think it through? Two very important words in forensic science, collaboration and note taking.
2: So forensic science, more than perhaps any other scientific discipline, requires collaboration. Without collaborations, you wouldn't be able to do anything. It's impossible that you can manage everything by yourself. If you go to the crime scene, you may collect the evidence, you may take the photos at the crime scene, you may take sketches, you may take notes, but you won't be able to process all the evidence. You have to submit the evidence to the respective lab. You may have like DNA, okay, you send it to the crime lab, the forensic bio lab. You may have some drugs, for example, that you collected or allegedly what could be drugs at the scene? So you send it to the you know either the forensic talks or forensic chem lab. And they deal with the processing of the evidence. So fingerprinting, the same thing; shoe print analysis, the same thing; blood pattern analysis, the same thing. So you're not working on your own. There's like dozens of people that are actually helping you solving the case. We also have detective. They may have to interview witnesses, to interview relatives, to interview friends. You're not doing that. It's impossible that you can manage everything by yourself. So the manpower that is related to the analysis and resolution of a case is huge. It requires sometimes dozens of people just to put together a case before even going to court and then of course once you get to court there's the judge the jury prosecution the defense and lawyers and whoever is there which is a very different side of course of the investigation or the investigation of trying to determine guilt or not guilt but yeah collaboration is number one and note-taking is the other very important thing because sometimes unfortunately law is a little slower than science You may have a case today, and you may not testify as an expert within, I don't know, three, four, five, six, seven years. And if you have good notes, you won't remember what you did six, seven years ago. If I ask you right now, do you remember what you did in 2015, Uh, October 6, 2015? You won't remember anything. So you need to have very detailed notes on the case, as well as your personal notes, so you can go back to the case and then if you have to testify at least be able to go back some details may have been lost in the way because you may not remember every single detail even with your notes but uh, between the report that you have you know written and the notes that you have your personal notes that can help a lot so note taking and collaboration i think there's at least these two uh, are super important to help,
1: help so what what would you say that the shows get right is there anything anything they get right or is it just totally all fight and fancy stuff that's a very good question.
2: Yes, they get some things right, uh, depending on what shows. So I would say that, yes, that basics or the foundation, I would say is close to reality. I would say that, for example, uh, when when you go to crime scene, mo- many times you go as a team, you have your bosses, you have your other collaborators that may help you with with processing the evidence. It depends on what type of show you're watching, but I can say for example, if you watch CSI, that's quite far from reality. If you watch something like Dexter, maybe that's a little closer. It depends on the type of show that you are that you're watching, but yes, they, they get the general and generic picture okay, but when it comes then to the details, everything from, you know, evidence collection, transportation, analysis, then that's when everything deviates from reality. So that's the reason why a lot of people think that, you know, DNA is infallible when it's not. Fingerprints are infallible when they're not. So we do have limitations when it comes to the analysis of evidence. And people think that, you know, if you don't have, as I said earlier, if you don't have DNA, you have no case. If you have no fingerprints, you have no case. And that's what these shows tend to portray. Like, okay, you need to have DNA and fingerprints if you want to solve something when it's not true. So... There is a lot of, I would say, getting a few things right, but I would say maybe 70% of the times, 60% of the times, they're they're not. So
1: they're not very uh, Okay. Let's go into some of the handwriting analysis. You said you rediscovered that there's more science to it than you thought. So tell me about some of the basic elements involved in it and some of the upgrades that you've learned recently. Sure. So most of my research actually
2: involves the analysis of fingerprints. And actually I'm working on, I'm sorry to, I'll get to the handwriting in a moment, but I just want to have a little introduction that most of 90% of my research involves the trying to determine the age of fingerprints at a crime scene. And this is was because I got once to a crime scene and we went to court and everything. And, you know, long story short, the judge asked me if I could determine if that person touched that object at a specific time. And I said, no, that's impossible. We cannot do that. So the person walked free. And that was very frustrating because we could find the fingerprint, but we could not prove that that person was at the crime scene at a specific time. So my research for the past 10 years has been trying to find ways to determine the time that someone has touched an object, not so much
1: who has touched it? When it comes to handwriting, and that's a very different field. Well, before we go to handwriting, let's talk sure. about the fingerprint age first. So, you know, what's left behind when someone makes a fingerprint? Are there oils and things? And are there organic oils that degrade? Like, you know, can you put a timeline on it?
2: Sure. So there are many different approaches. Actually, I wrote a book on fingerprint technologies that can be applied to fingerprint aging. And there are many, but these days, I would say we have two main approaches to the analysis of fingerprints. One would be the chemical analysis of the components of the sweat. And as you mentioned, Richard, we may have, for example, in our sweat, we have cholesterol, amino acids, certain proteins in there. And the chemical analysis involves the degradation, oxidation of these substances or compounds. I am not doing that approach. I'm doing what is called the optical approach or the visual approach, where we just look at the fingerprint and we're trying to see how the fingerprint changes over time. And we do know that fingerprints change visually. The topography of the fingerprint changes as it ages, but we never knew how much it changes depending on what conditions it's exposed to.
1: I guess sure. the the ridges where there's a, a very quick change in the depth of a ridge height, you know, that would create like a more pointy feature. Those would probably wear faster, I guess, than the uh, the base part of the you know, the finger where the ridges are not present or in between the ridges, let's say. So
2: these days, at least with my colleagues and my students, we're looking, we're analyzing the fingerprints in 3D and 2D, precisely for that purpose that you just mentioned about the heights, the widths, the color contrast between the background and the actual ridges of the fingerprint. So we do have many different metrics or morphometrics that we call That we can measure those changes that occur on a fingerprint and we can compare between the fresh fingerprint that has just been deposited or been imprinted on a surface compared to a fingerprint that's been there sitting for three months. The key component here is to determine what are the influencing factors on that aging, as well as what metrics are useful to reveal those changes. So we have worked in, in several different metrics, and we currently have a good insight of how fingerprints age. And actually, we have a video. It's, the I think, the only video that we has anyone has ever taken, which is the, I would say, we recorded the death of a fingerprint live. So we had a camera that was pointing at a fingerprint nonstop for over a year. And we saw the fingerprint just vanishing to thin air. And that's the only time anyone has ever recorded the death of a fingerprint live. And I have that video and I show it to my students. So any student that may be interested in fingerprinting or fingerprint aging, I love that video because you literally see the fingerprint like magic just disappearing. And that video was an eye opener for me because I thought that you could never see that happening. Of course, it doesn't happen in all instances. It depends, again, on the type of substrate that you have, on the type of uh, environmental conditions that go along. And But if you're able to determine under what conditions you see certain outcomes, then you have certain models that you can use at the crime scene based on those conditions that you can use in the lab. And that's what we're currently doing. We're trying to apply all the research that we have done in the past 10 years in the lab to the actual crime scene. So it's very exciting for the students. I have dozens of students who have worked on fingerprint aging. And we're getting close to actually uh, doing a proper application at a crime scene. So we're almost
1: there. It's a lot of research doing that we put into this. Okay. And then now for the, actually, give me a few details. Again, how does, um, do we understand yet how fingerprints degrade over time? Are there watershed moments like the first 24 hours are critical and then it degrades? And then after a week, it seriously degrades. Like, what, what does it look like?
2: So, it depends a lot on, again, on the type of substrate that you may have and the type of environmental conditions. So, I can tell you, for example, my research is only based on non porous surfaces, which means that these are surfaces such as glass and plastic, uh, which are very common in households. So, we all have like glasses, uh, wine glasses at home, uh, bottles, and also many, many surfaces in our homes are plastic-based. So these are the focus of my research, non-porous surfaces. For example, I can tell you that on plastic surfaces, fingerprints tend to degrade much faster. One finding that was quite shocking and unexpected was that it was thought by Many years of misconceptions that when you have a fingerprint that is exposed to direct sunlight, uh, that fingerprint may degrade much faster because of the degradation of the sunlight, because of the UV light, or whatever they thought. So we ran not one, not two, not three, but several experiments exposing fingerprints directly to the sun. And they are better preserved than fingerprints that were stored in a closet or in a drawer. Or anywhere that was in the dark. And we have some theories why that may happen. Why a fingerprint that it's on, for example, let's say a window. Someone has broken into a house and we see uh, a few fingerprints on the window of the side window of the house that is hanging up there. So we have a, a fingerprint. That fingerprint may stay there for years and years and years and years uh, without being degraded ever. We think that it's because of the dehydration process that actually it mummifies the actual thing. The same thing that happens with mummies in Egypt when we have those mummies, they have dehydrated the bodies and they're preserved for thousands of years. So we think that the oils get, I think in the word is saponified, they get emulsified like butter in a way, and they become in a way mummified. And that's why they can last much longer. That's one of the theories that we have. So this mummification process and the fingerprint may be a year old, two years old, and it looks as fresh as yesterday. It's just because it had got frozen in time because we removed all the water content. However, when you have a fingerprint Mm -hmm. that's in in complete darkness in a closet or in a a drawer, uh, you have a lot of bacteria growing keep in mind that fingerprints have a lot of oils they have a lot of water content or somewhat water content and we also have microbiomes on the skin those microbiomes would also
1: feed on those oils that you have deposited on a fingerprint and actually, actually you know fingerprints found at crime scenes i would think that the perp would be uh, much more likely to be sweating you know alert anxious nervous that kind of stuff. So I would think they would exude a lot more, you know, into their fingerprints than someone that's calm. Have you ever had fingerprints taken from someone that was calm versus someone that was like really agitated or excited or had worked out?
2: Um, nope. actually, we have not uh, done that type of research. Usually, when but that would be actually one thing to research. It is expected that when you are committing a crime, of course, you're sweating much more. Uh, your heart is beating much faster. And But we have ways to imitate that in the lab. So we have ways to recreate those conditions. For example, one of my first experiments, I went around the lab running for like 10 minutes. So I was sweating, my heart was beating super fast. And I know it's not exactly the same thing because I'm not stressed and certain hormones may not be showing. But we're trying to uh, simulate or simulate those cases of like high, you know, Sweat versus someone who's very calm. And we saw differences. There there are some differences, actually. Those type of fingerprints are high content, what we call it a green sweat. They tend to degrade much faster. So as opposed to what we call the sebaceous rich fingerprint, which are more like oily, those tend to be a little more sturdy over time. There are differences. Uh, this is a whole new world. And I suggest that if anyone is interested in this type of research, the book that I published, actually, it explains, you know, quite a lot of what it's known about fingerprint aging. It includes all the chemical analysis, visual analysis in 3D and 2D. So it's, it's a very comprehensive book. So if any of you audience is interested in that, that book is already there available. So those conditions of the donor, we also take them into consideration when doing this type of analysis. We've done, for example, considerations on biological sex with males versus females. We have done age studies. We have done, when it comes to donors, we have done BMI, body, what is called the body mass index. There you go, BMI. We have done, what else have we done? I don't know. we've We've done a lot of studies that also relate to the conditions of the donor. So, and everything has its own, I would say, particularities. So the more cases that we see, the better, but also at the same time, forensic science is sometimes is not considered a proper science or a true science. And it's very difficult to actually get resources, financial resources for research. And that is, can be problematic sometimes because we have to run, you know, very small experiments. There's a lot of competition as well between different labs, between different agencies. And we, you know, it's difficult to... To have breakthroughs, like a very important breakthrough, takes a long time, and it's just because there's no, there's not a lot of investment in in conducting research in forensic science as compared to for example, cancer research or any other sciences that, of course, they get a lot of attention uh, for an obvious reason as well. But me as a researcher that I came from a molecular cancer research field, I can see there's a huge disparity between these pure biological sciences compared to forensic science. And it's difficult to have advancements. And it takes a long time to actually run experiments, to come to conclusions, uh, because, you have to dose the experiments because they're very expensive to run as well. So that's one of the downsides of trying to find answers to the research that we're trying to answer all those questions. And, and it's, it's, it's difficult
1: to actually do the research. Who wants to fund forensic science? Who has an interest in it and why? I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's, it's like an after the fact type of activity, you know, after someone's dead, after they murdered, after, after, after. And I know people want justice, and that's important, but do you think that's why the funding is not nearly as much as, let's say, cancer? You know, this is funny. This is... uh,
2: Thank you so much for the question, because I always think that forensic science is almost like a reverse science. No one wants to invest in it until you need it. So for example, if, if you have children, if you have parents, and they are... And I'm going to be an excuse my, my language if anyone gets offended, but imagine that they get sexually assaulted, brutally assaulted. They get tortured and they get murdered. They've got like the body gets cut up into pieces, whatever they do with the body. Of course, the parents, the relatives, the partners, they want to have a solution right away. They want to know who did this. I demand an answer. I want to know. Well, yes, but there's no research. So how are we supposed to help you if you... Have or you, I mean the citizens overall or whoever needs to invest in this field you're not providing the money to help you answer the question, so in a way is exactly how you portrayed it, so yes, it's I want. When a relative of mine or my partner, they get involved as a victim of a crime or yourself, if you get, you know, for example, someone breaks into your house and they steal everything from you, of course, you want answers. You demand answers. I want to know who did this. I want this person to go to jail. I want to go, you know, I want to have peace of mind that this person will not attack me anymore, will not rape other people. Uh, So the answer to that question is, yes, we could solve many more crimes if if, uh, we could get research done. But it seems that this type of research is not in anyone's mind until something bad happens to you or closer to you. And uh, me as a researcher and educator and uh, investigator, it's sometimes unfortunate because I've been experienced myself, people who demand an answer. like I want to know who did this. Yeah. And in my mind, I always have the answer, well, there's no
1: money. I cannot help you without money. And, well, um, can, uh, I, I don't know, people will probably cry about ethics or something, but can people pay for you to do additional experimentation to figure out what happened? Of course. I mean, for example, right now I have a fundraising
2: campaign to help me build a patent on fingerprint aging models. And it's in Indiegogo. It's called Forensic Forensics in Time and Space. And there seems to be very little interest in it. I'm like, okay, well, that's I give it my shot. And that's what I'm trying to do. We do have actually funding resources, for example, the National Institute of Justice of the U.S. government, the NIJ, they provide grants, the NSF as well, the National Science Foundation. And in Europe, the same thing. We have the European Commission that provides money to forensic sciences. But these are incredibly, incredibly competitive. And small projects, for example, are very difficult to to find resources. And many times, this this not money for, of course, obviously, like everything else, like cancer research and, and, uh, and others, that there's no money for everyone, which makes sense. But if anyone wants to invest right now, have a campaign open. And by all means, if someone is interested, just donate the money and we can take it from there. And the reason why I opened that campaign, that open campaign, is because I tried a few times to ask for money to NIJ and NSF and it's very very difficult it's incredibly difficult to get that type of money so it's 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 a complicated field of research because everyone wants to be helped when they need it and actually we want to help people. But there's a lot of limitations. And unfortunately, when we try to help people, because you are in need, because something happened to you, something happened to your relative, we feel sad many times. That happened to me. I'm like, I wish I could have the money to help you with this and do research on this, but I can't. Research is very expensive.
1: And sometimes you just, you can do the basics. And well, not, e- not even research. Let's say, you know, I know someone, like, let's say, again, someone in your family was the victim of a crime. Could you approach the crime lab and say, like, hey, what's it going to cost to do additional experimentation and all that to figure out what happened to so-and-so? Can you pay them directly or they wouldn't even allow that? Well, I would say uh, that's a kind of an interesting question.
2: I don't have an overall answer to the question. So imagine that we have a millionaire Who's got, you know, family and some one of the kids got, you know, murdered. And they say, okay, I'm going to give you all the money you need to help solve this because I want to know about the, you know, blood pattern analysis. I want to do a thorough analysis. I want to know what happened or fingerprint or DNA, whatever needs to be done. I'm not sure to what extent, for example, police agencies could contribute to that. I know for sure that academia will very welcome these type of resources. Academia, because I've been in both. I've been in academia and I've been a, a practitioner. As a practitioner, it's especially when you work for the government, basically, it's very difficult to donate money. And I don't know to what extent that could be done. Probably could be done because the government is always welcoming donations. Academia, definitely, anyone could give money if you have even a particular case. And actually that happens a lot. We do a lot of consulting and many times, especially at at the University of New Haven, all my colleagues, myself, we consulting in cases involving fingerprints, handwriting examinations, and sometimes it requires a tiny bit of research, not very complicated you know, experiment, just something very simple to prove something. And that could be done. And many times we do it without, you know, cost just for the sake of finding a, you know, an answer to that specific question. But those are not very extensive research projects. Those are very, very, very small projects. Something may require just a couple of weeks or three weeks of, you know, very quick thing. But I know for a fact that academia will welcome anyone's money for that matter.
1: When you work on a case, who tells you what you can and can't do? Like, you know, is it based on the seriousness of the crime? You know, if someone just burglarized a house and there's fingerprints and blood or whatever, you know, versus like a murder. Do your bosses say like, all right, on this case, we've allocated uh, 20 grand to do this, that, the other. See what you can get done for that amount. Like, how do you know how much to do on a case and how much is allowed? That's a very good question, Richard. Okay, so technically, all cases have to be...
2: Uh, thoroughly examined. It doesn't matter whether it's a homicide. It doesn't matter whether it's a, you know, a sexual assault or just a robbery. It doesn't matter. You're supposed to be very thorough you su- go, you're supposed to find all the evidence. You're supposed to scan the crime scene for every single tiny piece of evidence you can find because you never know where that crime scene may lead you to. Maybe that crime scene is related to another crime scene and maybe it's related to, I don't know, an international network of you know, human trafficking or something. So that's why every crime scene, regardless of you know the severity of the case, you take it as serious as any other. So you collect fingerprints, you collect DNA, you swap samples for whatever blood samples, you collect fibers, shoe prints, whatever you find at the crime scene. Of course, there's a limitation in time because you cannot spend two days analyzing a crime scene, especially when these are open spaces, for example, A bank robbery, you cannot spend three days analyzing the crime scene. Ideally, the bank wants to go back to business. It has been a robbery or something, and you want to make sure that you can analyze the crime scene as soon as possible. Time constraints and human resources, as well, those are limitations. I wish we could have all the time in the world and all the money in the world to process every single piece of evidence, but we don't. So you have to prioritize. And although all the protocols and although the common sense and everyone, your boss is going to tell you, you have to be as thorough as as you can. There's a time constraint and you prioritize. Not that you're not going to be doing the analysis. You're just going to be prioritizing certain cases over others. So for example, you have a triple homicide and I have certain fingerprints and DNA. I will prioritize that over, for example, a burglary. Not that I'm not going to take you know care of those fingerprints at the burglary or you know blood samples or saliva samples, whatever I find, I will process that. But the first ones I will be processing are probably the ones that are related to a murder. That's how we prioritize, but you still do a thorough analysis of every single crime scene. Okay, that makes sense. As I said, uh,
1: I talk a lot, so my answers sometimes can be a little too long know, yeah, no, it's okay. It seems like it would make sense that every crime scene would be videoed. I know you don't want that footage to get out, but if people are going to look at the crime scene later, like, you know, when you're there in person, I'm sure nothing beats that in terms of looking for fibers or whatever it is, you know, evidence and stuff. But I would also think that videoing it, maybe also looking at it with a thermal camera and, you know, uh, night vision and whatever, you know, keeping that evidence on hand so it could be reviewed later to see if there's anything that was missed. Like, is that done? Yes, certainly. Again, not all the time. Again, we're going back to the available
2: resources and time constraints. But yes, we do have actually 3D cameras that can actually analyze the crime scene in 3D. So you have every single corner, every single edge, every single tiny space in a room that can be scanned in 3D. That technology exists. Is a little pricey. Not all agencies will have them, but currently they are available. So we can scan the entire scene within a few minutes and then it's like having a 3D sketch of proper reconstruction of the crime scene. So that is not done in every crime scene because it would be impossible. I mean, it's just, there's no way we could do a scanning every single scene. We rely as well on picture. pictures. Pictures you know, are also very important in crime scene. And many, many times we, if you are a good photographer, your crime scene pictures are almost going to be as good as a video. You're supposed to photograph every angle. You're supposed to photograph every perspective, close up, you know, far away, like meet, meet ranges, close up images. So if you're with a photographer, you may have like hundreds and hundreds of pictures from a crime scene, and then you revisit those pictures just in case. You may have missed something. And sometimes it happens that you actually have missed something at the crime scene. Could be something that you can perhaps go back to the crime scene if the crime scene is still preserved and perhaps collected. If the crime scene has not been preserved because, for example, it's been raining outside or it's a bank that reopened the doors to the public, that could be complicated to recover that piece of evidence that you forgot at a crime scene. So... What I'm trying, the bottom line is, yes, imaging, whether it's video, graphic, or images, photographic, are very, very important, especially when you're trying to go back to images. And I do that all the time with my crimes. What I did when I was doing crime scene reconstruction, you want to go back to your images, see if you have missed something. And if you, as I said, if if your crime scene is still preserved, you may actually go back to it and do a second sweep of the crime scene for any evidence that you may have left uh, behind. Not common. Usually crime scene processing, once it's done once, you know, you open the scene and that's it. But in some other instances, the crime scene will be, for whatever circumstances, the crime scene may be still taped off and you might be able to revisit the crime scene. So definitely video and photo is very
1: important. Okay, well, very good. Joe, it's been a great call. There's still a lot more I could ask you, but uh, we're out of time. What's the best place for people to go to find out more about your work? And where is your Indiegogo campaign? I want, if, you know, I'd like to post the link so people want to contribute, which I think they should, might like to as well. Where can people go? So if you go to, I can send you the link. Can
2: I actually text you a message for the link or how does it Sure, that would work. Okay, perfect. So I'll send you the link in the chat room of the Indiegogo campaign. Here it comes. Okay. It's called Forensics in Time and Space that's where I have the actual campaign going on with the fingerprint aging models. Also on YouTube, for example, I also have a channel. It's called Forensic Space in Time. And I can also send you the link to that on, on here. Just give me a second and I'll pull it up for you. So that's a good thing that I'm Right in front of the computer. In this video that I have on YouTube, it explains a little bit what we're trying to do and the relevance of fingerprinting uh, or the age of fingerprints. And especially one of the things that I am very interested in is the future of forensic science, especially what's going to happen. I know it sounds a little science fiction, but what's going to happen once we have permanent basis on the moon or on Mars if a crime is committed. So who's going to be responsible for processing those crime scenes? What type of evidence can we collect from those crime scenes in low gravity, for example? Uh, Some of my videos, actually, I look beyond uh, what, way beyond what we currently do in research to try to at least start the conversation about what's going to happen with forensic science in the future, in the near future, in the next five or 10 years. Because as far as I know, we're supposed to have like humans, a permanent base of humans on the moon by 2030. So I'm wondering what's going to happen if someone dies on the moon? Could be natural causes, which is okay. But what if it's not? Uh, natural causes? Who's going to be investigated? What type of evidence can we find in low gravity? So all those questions, I'm actually trying to start a conversation uh, about how we can, you know, how we tackle the future to come in the next decade, which is beyond, of course, my research in fingerprint aging, which is also one of my main topics of research.
1: Well, very good. Joseph, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting
2: me, Richard. Uh, I appreciate all the questions. And uh, by all means, if you have more questions in the future, I'll be very happy to, to again come and join you in a conversation. Excellent.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.